We have to be kind. We have to desire the good, even for those who are persecuting us. But we don't always have to do it by being sweet and slightly pent up like this. We can also laugh. The Profile with Premier Christianity magazine. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Emma Fowle. The Profile is a show where we sit down with a well-known Christian to hear more about their life, their faith and their ministry. It's brought to you in association with Premier Christianity, the UK's leading Christian magazine. The monthly title features more interviews just like this one, as well as all of the latest news, reviews, columnists and much, much more. Plus, there's great new digital content uploaded daily to our website, premierchristianity.com. To get full access wherever you are in the world, there are print and digital subscription options to suit you. Get the magazine delivered directly to your door or access all of the latest content via your computer, your smartphone or the Premier Christianity app. Head over to premierchristianity.com forward slash subscribe for more information. So today on The Profile, I'm really excited to be joined by author and creative writing Professor Francis Bufford for a very special edition of The Profile, which forms part of our November creative series. So Francis, welcome to The Profile. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Um, Let's just get started with a little bit of background about you. You mentioned in a couple of your books that you grew up in a, you know, a in a home that had a Christian faith in it. Could you tell us a little bit about the role that faith played in your early years in your home life? This is the nineteen this is the nineteen sixties and seventies we're talking about when when Christianity in England was much more, you know, kind of just a taken for granted part of, of, of ordinary life. I grew up on a university campus in the Midlands at Keel. Um, both my parents were serious and convinced churchgoers so we went to the parish church up the road as a as a kind of matter of course um, um in fact my mother wrote um a christian book in the middle of her of her career as a as a historian um my father had considered sometime in the 1950s possibly going for the ministry himself but um had been bitten harder by by the history bug but for both of them faith was a kind of integrated part of their of their lives and of the way they did their their thinking um my mother was completely delighted by the idea that she was busily trying to work out the lives of people in the 17th century from tiny little archival traces but she liked to say kind of they knew since they were now with God they knew the meaning of their lives much better than any historian would and she looked forward to discussing it with them later. <laughs> That's so sweet <laughs> and for you 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 write a, a book called The Child that the Books Child Built, books built. And um, you talk in that about your childhood love of books and of reading and of stories. And um, I loved reading that because it's beautiful when a book says the things about your own life that you feel to be real. I can, my husband has said it many a times to me that when I get engrossed in a book, he loses me to the world. So when yeah, I read those opening chapters and you talked about the world just disappearing from around you, I was like, that's me, that's me. I'm glad to meet another <laughs> one. Uh, but I was slightly, I was slightly taking refuge in books as well because I had a... 
Uh, my younger sister Bridget, who was um, ill with a ridiculously rare genetic illness that before the 1960s would have killed you as a, an infant and since then has become curable. But back in those days, you, you could just about stay stay alive at the forefront of medical knowledge. So my parents were run off their feet looking after her and I was I, I, I loved my ill little sister a lot but also couldn't quite bear to face the the reality of what was happening so some of the reading i did was was oh here's a door let me just let me just rush through it and if i couldn't hear what was going on around me maybe that was a bit of a bonus so i loved most of all books that took you away um the narnia books most of all but but you know anything anything fantastic that would would send you off traveling in time and space I think many people can probably relate to elements of that story in, in different ways. And I think that's one of the, the beautiful things that stories do for us, isn't it? That, that ability to escape where we are or what's going on around us. But intersecting with your faith, how does, how does that work for you? How did it work as a child? Did it change over the years? Is escape a good thing for you in terms of thinking about it from a Christian point of view? Yeah, escape is a mixed thing, isn't it? Because escape is both a liberation from what is confining and trapping in your in your close-up circumstances but also it can be a way of running away and not not facing what's painful in in life and the first kind of escape is good and the second kind of escape is not so good and I think they tend to come mixed up together I I did most of my believing as a child through a kind of Narnian filter. I would have been very happy if God just was Aslan. Um, and it was, you know, it, it, it wound its way into my, my thoughts and feelings. Um, I, I got equipped with, with that kind of kit of Bible stories that turns out to be so useful later in, in making sense of the world and understanding history and knowing what's going on in all those oil paintings at the National Gallery. Um, and I, I got confirmed when I was, when I was 13 um, and then promptly kind of teenage atheism arrived and I, I lost all interest in Christianity and would have thought, you know, apart from a faint nostalgic sense that my parents were good people, that it was unnecessary, that I, I didn't get what the adult point of it was. Um, and then discovered slowly and awkwardly what the adult point of it was in my 30s when I, I found I needed it. I was, I was in a room full of Christians um, and someone said, um, let's, let's go through and, 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 you know, raise your hand for the year in your life when you committed yourself to the faith. And one by one, every other hand in the room came up and there was me waiting for the age of 35 to come round before I could do it. Um, but I did get there in the end. I think many people will have that a similar sort of up and down relationship with faith. It's one of the things that is, you know, especially if you grow up in a Christian home. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I became a Christian when I was in my young teenage years, but still had the wilderness years of university, wandered away, got distracted, had to find my way back from it to it again as an adult. So it's, I don't think it's very uncommon, is it? What is it? What was it for you that was the turning point that made you go back to what you've been 
brought up with. Um, I'm going to put it in a bracket first. Um, no, I don't think it is that uncommon. Um, I, I find that, that almost everybody's story, particularly the story of their coming to faith, tends to have more in common than it has than it has differently. But it is also always individual and with unexpected bits in it. Close bracket. <laughs> um, right. I'm I'm in my mid thirties. I've got married. I I perform one of the classic destructive male mistakes of 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 midlife. My marriage is in apparently terminal trouble, um, and I can't for the life of me see any rational reason why anything should get any better and why I haven't messed things up completely and for good and the news that that there might be something to hope for after all comes to me sitting miserably in a in a cafe in the form of Mozart's clarinet concerto which somebody quite rightly has described as being like what mercy would sound like if it had a sound and what spoke to me about it was that it's a it's very beautiful but it's also quite sad and it's it's a it's like a kind of completely realistic bit of music. It doesn't go everything's fine really. It goes everything's not fine. You really have made the mistakes you've made. But that's not all there is to it. There is more to the story than that. Um there is mercy in the world which you don't have to deserve probably other people will be recognizing parts of this by now um but it took me quite a long time to to act on that or even to to work out how i was supposed to be acting on that um i had the advantage of having you know once been a, a believing child so it did tend to be churches that i wandered into to sit quietly at the back on my own thinking thinking what am i supposed to do with this sensation um but it took me a little while to discover that the the message I was getting, courtesy of Mr. Mozart, was was actually ultimately coming from God. And bit by bit, that that actually there's nothing childish about Christianity at all. It is a profoundly realistic religion where human behaviour is concerned and... And it is just there waiting for adults who mess up and see no way out of the, the idiotic messes, or worse than that, that they have, they have got themselves into. And bit by bit, I discovered this is sounding more abstract than it, than it, than, than it, than it actually was at the time, because the idea bit is always easier to describe than the, than the emotional bit. But all right, here's the idea bit. Yeah. Bit by bit... I discovered that Christianity gave a kind of account of what it was like to be a human and how that worked, which seemed more true, more complete, more wise, more kind, more satisfying than than any of the other ones. But But talking about it as ideas is misleading. What actually happened is that kindness with a capital K, wisdom with a capital W, even a bit of justice with a capital J, because, you know, you do really have to, to try and make restitution for the things you things you messed up, reached out towards me. I what I discovered was that was that it wasn't just about me and the ideas in my 
in my head that you reach out a hand, another much bigger hand comes back reaching for you. Yeah, that's interesting what you're saying. Like, there, there are several questions I'd like to ask you out of that, but, but one of them is um, this idea that you said, obviously, having had the background that you had, that, that a lot of that information and knowledge was already sort of stored away from those childhood Bible stories that you'd heard and learned. So for you, it was kind of a, a rediscovering of some truths that you already knew. It's a different story, isn't it? Perhaps if you've never been a Christian or never had any um, any Christian upbringing at all or input, and for, for many people in today's society, that's more true, as you were saying earlier, than from the world that you were raised in in the 60s. You know, where do you think we go with that as a society? Is it is it a problem? Is it not a problem? I think it's I think it's both a problem and and an opportunity. It's a it's a problem because it means that that there is always now far more work to be done from scratch in trying to in trying to reach out with with good news. You you know. You can't explain to people um, that, you know, great, you're redeemed, if they have no idea what that means, no sense they might to be redeemed from anything. Um, there's a lot more groundwork that has to be, that has to be done these days. Um, that's the problem part. On the opportunity side, um, a lot of the, the hostility that there was to Christianity is, is fading away fading away into incomprehension but I'd rather have incomprehension than hostility in, in, in some ways. The, the generation who were forced to, to sing all things bright and beautiful while kind of gritting their teeth and going oh, I hate this, oh, I hate this, I'll never, 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 never ask a child to go through this in my family. <laughs> um, you know they've raised their kids that is over and it's and it's going away. But in some ways, it feels weird speaking for Christians and saying we, but we um, now have to behave as if we're in a society where we're genuinely announcing something that no one has ever suspected before. Yeah. And um, would you have counted yourself in that number of the generation that that really pushed a back bit. against it? Or Sorry, it I'm just... talking at the same time because yes. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I remember that part of my, my, my teenage rebellion against God was a, was finding churches the physical buildings of churches intensely uncomfortable as if they were trying to get at me in some way so so once i had you know power over my own my own legs i walked myself out of there so that that unpleasant sensation could you know couldn't be there anymore and in a funny way it was once i was convinced that churches were empty and there wasn't anything in there trying to get me that that you know i was making less noise in my head so i could i could start to pay attention to to what might really be there and it wasn't trying to get me and when you when you started your journey back towards faith was that something you did on your own was it an academic exercise for you being an academic or was no, it you know, was no 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 did you have people around you that that's helped just you rationalizing that? well my wife with whom i've made a terrible mess of things um is is a believer and is in fact an, an anglican vicar now um cathedral canon um she has always been a large influence on my on my faith um 
so that. Um, and what did that look what, like in the e- early years? Because you, you've been together since you were at uni. You're, with right. gaps yeah. and gaps and major mistakes, um, <laughs> but, which I'm not going to get too specific about because they're not just my shames and sins. <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, they are my shames and sins, but it's not my... It, other people's privacy is involved. So Completely, yeah. completely. Yeah. But you, you've known each other a long time. We she's have. Always been, she's always yeah. had a faith. So how did that work, you know, in your uh, atheist years? She didn't push it, um, which was wise and she wasn't always the right person to talk to about it Mm. when I started my journey back my parents um split up when I was a teenager shortly after I became a Christian my dad had an affair and several other terrible things and when my mum became a Christian and then my dad became a Christian later one of the first things she said was he's not coming to our church (laughs) this is my safe space you go find somewhere else to sort yourself out and I think you know at times there's certain wisdom in that in the relationship isn't it yes indeed you sort Um, your own spiritual lives out with other wise people quite and you can can converge again later once you've once you've um once you've allowed kind of mercy to do its to do its necessary work on you, I mean, I, I I've been a vicar's husband now for <laughs> for heavens nearly twenty years, so it's not like we didn't get it together in the end. Yeah, um, <laughs> what's that like being a vicar's husband? Um, slightly weird in that <laughs> um, in that I'm quite a lot less holy than she is, but there is a kind of slightly alarming glow i'm not saying she literally glows but um <laughs> maybe but she does maybe she does but maybe it's just that i think of her like that but um it, it, there is a kind of church umbrella which which the vicar or the minister's family finds themselves underneath as well not always the easiest place to grow mm. up um, as my you know my daughter has found yeah. but you find in some ways that you've entered a kind of slightly weird family business where where kind of attempting to manifest the love of god is is kind of what you do Mm. Um, and I'm not that good at it. But, it's quite uh, interesting talking to a man about this because quite often we, we hear the traits of our vicar's wives and the expectations that's placed on the pastor's wife. So it's quite, I've never actually spoken to a, a male who holds this. We get it much easier. And I, have to, <laughs> I now have to now fess up and go, and go, go men have a much easier time of it thanks to the evils of the double standard because <laughs> I found that if you know nobody ever asked me to be president of the Guild of Needlewomen or to do the final hour arranging and if I could be competent at all at cooking a lasagna for 12 people will go oh well done <laughs> clap 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 um, no one ever wanted you to run the preschool they didn't um though i did you know i did actually run the sunday school at one point but but um people were surprised and delighted rather than going well naturally she's doing it mm. um yeah vicar's husbands i think have a have a like a twice as easy ride as 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 vicar's wives but, but there is something i don't know if i can describe this properly but but there is something about being in a whole load of human encounters, not just yourself, but but trying to represent something beyond you and far beyond your own your own powers to do, which is it's it's, it's a peculiar discipline, and I no idea whether I've ever done it at all well. But it's you know, it's part of goodness. I'm not that good at doing goodness either but but there's something <laughs> there's something about facing towards god and the good which is very rewarding you open unapologetic by talking about your then six-year-old daughter who oh. i'm guessing now is somewhere in her late teens 17, 17. going on 18 oh, yeah. same, same age as my oldest um saying that she's just about to learn something that her family is incredibly weird so as a 
the parent of teenage daughters, I just wanted to ask you how how has that worked out for you? Did uh, she realise that she you did, were weird? She did realise that we were how, that how we did, were weird. Um, the early years in which um, which she would cry out happily to strangers as we bicycled to church. Are you going to church too? Uh, she stopped doing because she discovered that most people actually weren't. They were off to play five-a-side football on Sunday mornings. Um, she doesn't. She doesn't really enjoy the goldfish bowl aspect of living. Um, living in a vicarage um and she's finding finding her own way i think she's probably more of a buddhist than a christian at the moment but i'm quietly confident that that um i really hope she's not going to listen to this because i'm quietly confident that she'll find her way back in her own good time (laughs) was i whispering that loudly (laughs) enough it's a very unique experience growing up with uh, with um, ministers as parents, isn't it? And it I, is. I cannot, I can, my my father um, speaks since he became a Christian. He sort of has travelled around the world telling his testimony. He's never been a minister, but it's a, a very odd experience when when your parents are very prominent in that world. And the church world is quite small in the UK. Yeah. So it becomes a bit of its own pressure, really, doesn't it? And and there is always this this issue about how personal you should be if you are mm. if you are offering testimony or telling your own life story. And and as I found when I was when I was writing unapologetic, which is my attempt to explain from scratch for people who don't have their heads already handily stocked with Bible stories, um, you have to tell your own story because. That's how you demonstrate that actually Christianity isn't abstract and it makes sense in a life. You go, here's this life, which happens to be my life. Mm. You can recognise some stuff here. And even though yours is different, we're talking about life-shaped problems here. But then there is always the question about you know, how much is too much, whose privacy is, is yours to to dispose of mm. um, how much you can say before you're being you know before someone cries TMI yeah. <laughs> you're a sinner that's all I needed to know you don't have to name the individual sins so let's talk about Unapologetic all right. um, it's, it's a great book it's one of my favourites did you get much pushback from the Christian community over the overly sweary aspects of it a little bit but but actually far less than I'd expected um, I think uh, it was a particular moment when I was writing it, when the kind of um, the Richard Dawkins wave was at its at its height, um, and I thought, I thought there are lots of responses to the God Delusion um, and the other New Atheist bestsellers, which are painstakingly kind of careful, all about the ideas, full of philosophical argument. You can go, Mr. Dawkins, I'm afraid you've got the theology slightly wrong here, and none of them quite did the job because he was really just doing a kind of um, fire hose of of enjoyable scorn and I thought we should have a fire hose of our own really (laughs) why do Christian books always have to be so overwhelmingly well behaved you know we, we shouldn't be nasty we shouldn't be evil but we could be funny and we can if 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 people's ideas of us are ridiculous we ought to be able to say so so I I set out to write something which explained from scratch while being fast on its feet and funny and occasionally quite mischievous and as part of that sweary (laughs) but looking back I think to myself was the sweariness really necessary it was it was a solution to to telling people that Christians 
don't always speak in soft, restrained voices like this and that our faith does not exist in some sort of glass dome where, where even a loud sudden movement might suddenly shatter it. And I thought the quick way to do that is just to arrive in a sort of leery way with your, el- <laughs> with your elbows out. Um, but actually talking laddishly about your faith was only one way of doing it and I'm not sure it was the best way of doing it looking back 12 years 13 years later whatever it is you, you just you have to admit you just wanted to be the the bono of, of christian apologetics yeah i know um but but ever since it came out people have been meeting me and being slightly disappointed that i'm not <laughs> quite the persona they met on the page because i'm more rock star <laughs> i am a, i am a bit sweary but i'm not that sweary and i never swear in church and that draw a nice hard line between profanity okay mm. and blasphemy not okay um, but I don't know if I'd do it that way anymore. Um, mm. But it, it sort of did the job of of being not in the tone of voice that people people were you know people were expecting. Yeah, and sometimes there's something about taking a, an unexpected approach to something that sort of grabs people's attention a little bit, yeah. isn't there? And I do definitely think there is something about that idea that Christian. Uh, creativity, whether it's art or music or literature or just Christians in general, have to be, like you say, eternally and forever nice and kind and polite. And of course we do. But no, hang on, let's distinguish here. We have to be kind. We have to. We have to be. We have to desire the good, even for those who are persecuting us. But um, we don't always have to do it by being by being sweet and slightly pent up like this we can also laugh yeah and and that is you know genuinely something probably that puts a lot of people off of christianity isn't it that kind of image of the the pearl and twin sets and you know the archetypal church of england sunday morning and for a lot of people that is not something that relates to their life indeed and also it's cobblers in terms to use a technical theological <laughs> theological term there it's cobblers in terms of of the actual reach of the faith christianity is about the whole of human life it is not afraid of the dark bits the messy bits the untidy bits um the bad tempered bits the the dull bits the, the troublesome bits the bits whose meaning you really can't work out but trust that god can i mean it, it's 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 big and realistic and unafraid of anything that the human condition can can throw up and that doesn't sound to me like a recipe for a polite nervous little voice yeah so what you're basically saying is god is not as easily offended as sometimes we may think he is quite i don't think god is offended in the human sense by by anything we are assured that there is literally nothing we can do that will cause god to 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 turn away and give up on us there are obviously things that god would prefer we didn't do but but um he seems to be committed luckily for us yeah but there are things obviously that he doesn't like in us and that he would have us change yes but But it's never a reason to it's never a reason to turn away there's no parable that goes we won't bother to track down that lost sheep because rather unsightly one no i was going to say i think it's probably the things that we we may be surprised at the things actually that god will have us change yeah quite we are classically bad at working out what our most important 
sins are. Um, the things we are most guilty about may well be a mere sideshow compared to the stuff that God would most like us to have changed. So let's talk about um, creativity because um, obviously you're a professor of creative writing. It's one of the things you do is teach creative writing and have done for a long time and obviously you've a lifelong love of stories and storytelling and reading them and writing them and you write non-fiction and fiction and everything in between it seems. So for you, how does your faith intersect with your creativity as a writer and a storyteller? This is a surprisingly tricky question. To begin with, I, I used to try out the idea of going, I'm not a Christian writer, I'm just a writer who happens to be a Christian, but that can't be quite true because because my Christianity doesn't exist in some sort of separate box which I which I close when I write. It it influences the way you understand everything. So naturally it influences the way I write and what I write about as well. I tend not to be drawn to you, Maybe people will have guessed this by now, judging by the, my defence of swearing a minute ago. But um, I tend not to be to be drawn to writing stories about people who know they're trying to lead the Christian life. What I tend to do is to to write stories that have got a kind of theological bottom layer, like a kind of underlay in the carpet of the story, um, which the characters don't necessarily know is there, but which but which is there, and in which the, the lives of the people I'm writing about fall into shapes of redemption, really. It seems to me to be a very important truth that the, the Holy Spirit is not just active within the church. The Holy Spirit is not that selective, again, fortunately, and um, all lives are being constantly nudged towards grace, forgiveness and and the good and put that together with Christianity not being afraid of any bit of human behaviour and you seem to me to have a recipe for a kind of universal curiosity about everything and and everyone and also a kind of, how can I put this, a sort of moral commitment to trying for a universal sympathy even with people who have done dreadful things that literature shouldn't stop trying to understand people no matter the what I and mean, obviously we writer can't be like god except in some sort of tiny tiny way but trying to understand your imagined people as you as you hope as you guess as you feel that god understands all of all of us without limit so so it seems to me that as a Christian, I am helplessly and endlessly telling stories which are like kind of tracings of the of the gospel story, even if it's not visible to most readers, even if it's not always visible to me when I start when I start writing the things, um, and as I get towards the end, I think, oh, I've told that story again. It's redemption, isn't it? Oh well. <laughs> Well, I think there's lots of people that would argue that even if a story or a piece of art or a piece of music is not intrinsically created specifically to tell a gospel story, that the gospel is the greatest story ever told and that therefore, you know, it kind of is embedded in all of the stories that we tell as humans, isn't it? How can it not intrinsically reflect? Um, 
we should have the confidence of going, you know, it's a universal message. And universal really means universal. It means that, that everything in creation, whether it knows it or not, whether you know it or not, is is bending gently towards the purposes of, of the one message and the one story. Does that influence your teaching at all? Like, mm. oh, Now you're on even trickier ground. Um... I don't talk about my faith unless other people ask about it. Um, It's a matter of sort of kind of teaching ethics that you don't want to get between other people and whatever it is that they're working on. But now and again, people have asked. um, And I assume because of writing books like Unapologetic, everyone knows you're a Christian. Quite, no. So it's not not like I'm keeping a secret of it. I'm just just not shouting about it and, and less invited. Do you have any thoughts on um, the idea that whether it's music or writing that some publishers or publishing houses may sort of shy away from telling stories of the Christian faith because you know there is that perception that maybe that the, the telling the stories of Christianity in particular is something that publishers are not too keen on. There is some there's some sort of lingering historical prejudice which has to do I think probably with the with the with the kind of generation that is. I say passing away as if I'm eager for them to be dead, but I'm really not. Um, But I think the point where there is active hostility to Christianity in the culture and therefore in the culture industries is going with this useful incomprehension following on. But, But yeah, people are wary of explicit Christianity because it may be embarrassing and because they think it may be propaganda. And also, you know, not being rude... But some of the things that go by the name of Christian art are not very good. (laughs) And some of the attempts to create a kind of little parallel worlds of specially Christian music or, or, or entertainment seem to me to seem to me to to settle for settle for a world that's too small. And then other people outside it go, no, we don't want that. It's too little. I don't know quite how you get out of that particular Mm. that particular bind. It helps. I mean, there is a there is a weird sense in which if you're not white, Christianity is more easily accepted as as part of your kind of your cultural history and your and the kind of the package of things which it's okay for you to care about. Yeah, um, yeah you're right. Um, we often see black artists, actors, musicians speaking about their faith openly, often at award ceremonies and things like that. But you're right, we very rarely see white Christians um, being so openly expressive about the Christian faith in the same way in the public sphere. And it's partly just to do with the kind of the cultural vibe that 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 um, um, black British Christianity or or, um, African British Christianity has compared to you know, my own dear Church of England, which is kind of, it's not very cool as an institution, I have to say. Um, but we've got lovely flower arranging. <laughs> Come on down. Um, but is it, I think as I, I completely agree with you, I have over the years as an avid reader lamented quality Christian writing. Mm. Um, but it, it's interesting to me that you, you kind of get the odd outliers and you the breakthrough things like the shack that suddenly like takes mm. the world by storm and ends up on airport bookshelves. And, or, and I think, or, oh, how do we do that again? Like, I'd love to see I'm more. I'm not sure it's a repeatable formula. Um, <laughs> but or, or, or at the kind of the top end of literary fiction, Marilyn Robinson, when, yeah. when Gilead comes out mm. and, and suddenly a great many people 
who know it's a wonderful book find themselves very curious about the kind of the, the world of of faithful feeling that's mm. that's in it and they don't necessarily get it they don't necessarily want to go there themselves but they they respond strongly but I'm not sure I haven't got a I haven't got a master plan that is any more than write good books <laughs> one at a time. Uh, <laughs> That's a shame. Sorry. I'm very interested in hearing that. Yeah, but you know, it's really interesting though, isn't it? Because you do get those artists. I'm thinking of people like Stormzy, who are very much in the public eye, that are hugely respected, like massive megastars within the industry, but also um do tell those stories of faith quite strongly through their art. So, you know, the question is how do we do that um, you know, interestingly thoughtfully and fearlessly let's add that one as well because because part of that is is not being afraid of public reactions um i say this because in it's one who's had a very lucky life in which i i got well known first before i came out as a christian so so in some ways i did it the cowardly way round. (laughs) um but but also fearlessly in the sense of not being afraid of difficult subject matter not behaving as if we are restricted to some quiet good mannered little little theme park of human emotions we should behave in line with what we actually believe that the whole thing the whole deal all of human life is 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 open for intelligent and wonderful christian artistry the renaissance would be you know full of artists who would agree with you instantly about about that and we should we should get some of our cultural confidence back there's something here about not being afraid not being timid not being limited but also never settling for propaganda or sentiment always making things we think are true we have a god of truth so so it doesn't really matter if we're uncomfortable too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories It's time for a more rounded perspective. It's time to discover Premier Christianity. Balanced, confident, relevant, faith-filled. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe at premierchristianity.com. Now only £5 for three months. So you've written nonfiction, you've written apologetics, you've written fiction. Um, your fiction tends to be fairly wild. Thank you. Is that a good way to describe I, it? I, I, I don't know, but I'm really <laughs> pleased by it as a description. Um, um, you've, you've written two books. that are, uh, The two novels that you've written are, are both based in America, in a historical world that is sort of part based on history and part mm. imagined. Yeah. So, I mean, it takes in a lot of different themes and maybe that's partly reflected by the the breadth of the reading you you said you loved as a child mm. tell us about your latest novel um the new one um Cahokia Jazz which which is a novel set in a slightly different version of American history where where native americans didn't die of european diseases in in huge tragic numbers but were still there um growing maize and ready to be converted by dedicated missionaries from um, from the Roman Catholic Church coming up the river Mississippi from Mexico. So now, now being 1920s in the novel, um, there's a big city mostly populated by piously Catholic Native, Native Americans on the banks of the Mississippi, um, and there's a murder on a rooftop, um, and there's a there's a conflicted detective because you have to have a conflicted detective <laughs> who isn't sure whether he should be a policeman or a jazz 
pianist um, and a week of ever wilder events, including um, enormous crowd scenes and, and, and rooftop dramas. And I love rooftop dramas. My previous <laughs> novel had a rooftop drama too. And heading for somewhere which, if you happened to be a Christian, you would recognise was a drama of redemption. But um, it needs to work even if you don't recognise that. Um, I should say, not just America. My previous book was about was about London. Um, yeah. Light Perpetual mm. was a was a book about London over the last fifty or sixty years. And again, if you're a Christian, you'll probably recognise that light perpetual is one of the phrases that comes up when people are doing funerals and praying for the dead. Because I wanted to write a book about time in human lives and eternity and how time and eternity can possibly fit together. And how even grubby, wonderful old London can be a kind of suburb of the city of God. You, you managed to pack a lot into your fiction undertakings. You got yeah. a bit of history, a bit of theology, a bit of made-up world. A bit yeah. of, like, um, and let's not forget the rooftop drama. And the rooftop dramas. Um, um, yeah, I, <laughs> Are you going to make sure one of those goes into every book that you write from now on? I couldn't possibly say. But <laughs> one thing I have done, which I've, I, I didn't notice while I was doing it, is that every single novel I've published has got a church service of some description in it. There's, there's, I've got an old-fashioned book of common prayer morning service. I've got a full-on Pentecostal service with long sermon and gospel music. The new one has got a mass in Latin in it and I'm working towards some sort of Christ- Christmas even song in the next one But because I've, <laughs> I've spotted that I keep doing this and I'm now going to work my way through every possible kind of service. Amazing. I think it's great because I think that is one of the problems I, I see in, in the portrayal of Christianity within the storytelling world, whether it's TV dramas or films or books is quite often when a Christian does pop up they're either incredibly weird or incredibly sinister yeah so it's quite nice just to have it portrayed as a part of life like it doesn't even have to be the main part of a story yes it just needs to be Um, this is part of the human experience um I, I make a special point of doing it when I'm writing historical fiction even if the history is slightly weird and made up because It's odd the way that historical novels now mostly leave out church from the past when church was such a large accepted part of life in the past. So so when I was writing my last book, but two, with a mysterious bad boy known as Mr Smith turning up in 18th century New York, he does take himself to church. And he is a bad boy and he makes some terrible mistakes. But it's Sunday morning, so he goes to church. And I thought there is a challenge here to describe this so so that it's, it's not a kind of freaky alien thing he does, but a perfectly ordinary piece of mm. of human activity. I don't know. I have faith that we're passing through some sort of narrow times for Christianity, but it'll broaden out again. Um, people will get us without the need for enormous explanations again. You just, just give it another century or so. Yeah. <laughs> Down for that. I'm praying for that. So what would you say to those Christians who perhaps think that the the Bible is all we need, that don't um, enjoy engaging with fiction or don't believe that it's a a useful or productive use of our time? Um, I'm assuming that obviously you don't agree with that point of view, but what would you say to those Christians who do hold that view? I have to break it to them that the Bible is full of stories. Um, no, I, I can understand that, but there is a difference to my mind between between saying that the Bible contains everything necessary for salvation and saying that you shouldn't do anything else. Um, just because it's got everything necessary in it doesn't mean that you can't 
enrich your life and enrich your life of faith by by rejoicing in everything that human creativity can add to that to go along with it on the journey um also there's another more kind of tightly Christian point to be made there, which is that every generation has the responsibility of building a new bridge between what is in Scripture and what is going on in people's everyday experience in 1800, 1900, 2000, now, onwards into the future. It's it's always necessary to go, here's the book, here's your life, this is how you connect the, the book to your life and storytelling is always going to be part of that it's always essential to keep reimagining it for every for every generation because and if you go back to the 50s you've got people like cs lewis obviously that were quite demonstrating a master class in that now even again going back to people like stormzy they yeah. kind of are doing that aren't they but quite but it needs to be done differently mm. for different times and different places over and over again it is part of the the permanent duty, let's say duty, that's a really unenjoyable word, but duty of being a Christian, that you have to go on explaining yourself in terms that people will actually get and just going kind of, I'm sorry, I wish to be alone with the new international version, is not going to do it. (laughs) Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Exactly, even if sometimes it might involve a bit of swearing, although I'm not sure now that that was the right (laughs) way to go. You'd like to recant on the swearing. (laughs) I don't want to recant on it. I want to say there might have been better ways, but it was what I could think of at the time. Fair enough. <laughs> work in progress. <laughs> yes, aren't we all a work in progress? Exactly. Yeah, and, and just is an interesting point, isn't it? Um, I was going to ask you a question there about um, creativity. You said something like everything that we can Im- imagine and create like we should enjoy but there, there must be limits to that mustn't there there are um there is such a thing sure. as well there's idolatry waiting around just to be a little bit of a problem um there are some kinds of imagining and enjoying which are not good for us um but they aren't the generous kind and they aren't the kind which is fearlessly curious about other people's about other people's lives um they tend to be with enormous monotony things that offer pleasures cheaper and simpler and cruder than than real life ways of going kind of you don't want that real meal what you want is to eat a pound of sugar or that offer us lying substitutes for for realism i think there is nothing to fear in describing anything so long as the commitment to, to truthfulness is there um but it is possible to describe anything and twist it for for a satisfaction which is a kind of escape from from reality and, and now we're back at the beginning of the conversation that's the wrong kind of escape mm. um, we wish to escape from from the jail cells of our of our limitations and our sins we do not wish to escape f- from reality reality is the good stuff yeah, and if you think about the generation that are growing up now and all the challenges they're facing, I'm thinking in particular um, with pornography and those types of challenges, they are being fed that lie, aren't they? That that um, it's okay to escape from the realities of life by burying yourself in porn, and and that's causing huge problems amongst our um, our younger generation, isn't it? Right, um, and and that that's not actually human sexuality. That's yeah. like a kind of embarrassing commercial knockoff of human sexuality 
You don't do social media, do you? I don't do social media. Why is that? Partly because I have a suspicion that if I once started tweeting, I might never do anything else. <laughs> um, but also because, and I may not come across this way, I'm actually quite shy. And I, I, I have a job as a writer, partly so that I can sit in a room on my own going, what's the next adjective? And then I can come out of the room and chat to people and enjoy it, And then, but the, 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 on condition that I can go back in again. And I have this feeling that if I did social media, I might never be alone again. <laughs> <laughs> Let the record show that he shuddered at this point. Um, yeah, and it's it's probably I'm I've had I've actually had lots of creative people say that um, social media is not actually good for their creativity. I guess because it's so much of your time and attention, doesn't it? Sometimes it you need does. that blank space to and keep and and it and also dreaming. it is an instant sugar high available when what you actually need to be doing is kind of is chewing away at something difficult you don't know quite how to do yet. Okay, so as a lifelong lover of stories, you've already said that the Bible is full of fantastic stories. Do you have a favourite? What's your favourite Bible story and why? It's it's the woman taken in adultery, um, which is not a fun story, but it, it is a life or death illustration of what Jesus' priorities are and therefore what God's priorities are. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.